answer that I gave you is they didn't bother to interview a single witness. Just like you, they don't want to know the truth. Not part of that. Representative. I, I will. I will. I will ask that he be he be disciplined for that. My name is Ben Burgess, and this is Give Them an Argument. I am about to be speaking to Natalie Wynn. I am not going to be speaking on this episode uh, with uh, with uh, the great Amber Frost. Uh, there was a scheduling problem there, and we we're going to uh, try to reschedule that. Uh, I will give you more information about when that is going to be very soon. Uh, but I am going to be speaking to Natalie, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, and I am, of course, going to be ending the episode by drinking whiskey and talking about country music with the great David Griscom. Uh, so uh, this should be a lot of fun. Uh, the voice that you just heard uh, was uh, formerly known as America's Mayor uh, and now known, I think, as the strange farting old man who led this incredibly half-hearted, grifty, supposed attempt to uh, overturn the election results that, you know, I tend to think is more about uh, raising money uh, from uh, the MAGA faithful. Um, but uh, but in any case, uh, whatever you think about Rudy, I'm going to be talking uh, to uh, Natalie about politics, about philosophy, about persuasion. Uh, it's a really interesting conversation. So enjoy that. I am now joined by Natalie Wynn, uh, better known by the name of her YouTube channel, uh, ContraPoints. Thank you so much uh, for coming, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, everyone. Hi, Ben. <laughs> yeah, so I think that um, even though this is not the main thing I want to talk to you about, since the first time that you were ever on my radar was when I watched uh, your video about uh, Jordan Peterson, and he uh, he has he is coming out with uh, with uh, with twelve more rules uh, for uh, for life. <laughs> yes, Didn't uh, have enough of them. Yeah, no. Now they're going to be twenty four, and it's going to be interesting yeah. to see like if uh, if this just keeps going, or there's a point where, you know, where he's done all the rules, and you know there aren't any left. He can't continue to come out with a new dozen every few years. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, so oftentimes, like I think that a lot of uh, you know a lot of videos uh, that you know I remember um, I remember after I watched that, you know, I went back and watched some of the ones that you did. Uh, where you're doing things like, uh, you know, hardly anybody does this, you know, like actually arguing with like literal white supremacists uh, and explaining why it does not actually make sense to say that the, you know, the white race is going to be, you know, wiped out in some way. Um, so, so this is, this seems like a lot, um, you know, even though, you know, maybe that specific thing, you know, you're sort of done and you haven't done a lot of that lately, like it, it does seem like a lot of what you do is argue with things of various kinds that most people who agree with you about would just roll their eyes at. And I was wondering if you wanted to just speak a little bit to what you see as like, you know, the value of that or why that's something that interests you. 
Well, I guess the way I see it, um, knowledge and maybe even reality itself is being divided into these bubbles and you can produce discourse for your own bubble. And that's what I think most people online do is they, you know, so if you're, if you're a leftist YouTuber, most leftist YouTubers these days, I feel like they kind of make leftist content for a leftist audience and it becomes this, um, well, I don't know. It's like the secular version of going to church or something, right? You're going to hear a well-spoken person deliver things that you already agree with. Maybe you'll learn some new things, but like fundamentally you're not, you're not trying to, there's not an attempt to like open up your worldview to an outsider and to say like, look from my way of seeing, you know, I guess, why do I do this? Well, I started on YouTube when there wasn't a whole lot in the way of like a leftist community there. There was this kind of feminist vlogger community and there was like the Young Turks. But apart from that, uh, you know, there wasn't like a really strong community, like a YouTube community. There wasn't a market, I guess you could say, uh, for this type of content. Um, So this was not something I went into because I was I had some kind of like calculation about like, oh, here's an audience that I can make content for. Like it was more about confronting a problem that I saw on the platform itself, which was that it was entirely overrun with like a sort of far right, well, I should say sort of center right movement that was mm. moving to the far right at a terrifying pace. So I guess this was the era of dunking on SJW feminists snowflakes, uh, 76 genders, all that. And I guess I thought what was happening is that people's like understandable frustrations with people who are called social justice warriors were becoming their, the center of their politics. I'm annoyed at activists. That's my political worldview is like what these people seem to be saying. Um, and I thought like, oh, that's, that's really bad because, um, you know, okay, activists are annoying, sure. Right. But the things that, a lot of the things activists are saying are true. A lot of the causes that the activists are representing are important. And if your politics becomes anti-activism, and that's basically what it is, anti-SJW, as it was called at the time, then like, uh, not only does that put you in a kind of, cons- I mean, you're now a conservative basically, because that's what a conservatism is, is opposition to progress, it's like to progressivism, it's opposition to change. It's for preservation of the status quo, usually by attacking anyone who's trying to change things. And then at worst, it also provided this kind of cover, this big right-wing tent under which some very sinister people were found protection and community up into and including like literally Nazis, Richard Spencer, um, you know, and and they found that this was actually a great sort of recruiting method for them is that, oh, complain about the SJWs. Well, everyone likes complaining about the SJWs. So if we open up our Nazi ideas with a, with a prologue about these crazy SJWs, like uh, it was a bad situation. So I, I decided to like try to go in and like talk to some of the people who were sort of in the, in the process of, of getting radicalized by this kind of content. Yeah. So that, that makes, uh, that makes sense to me. Uh, and, and it seems to, to work. I mean, I remember a while ago, I don't know, a year ago, something like that, maybe um, 
I, all time blurs together, especially during the pandemic. So I'm not sure, but uh, that uh, there was a point where I remember uh, when uh, when you were, I think you know, must have been one of the times you were using Twitter a little bit more when you had uh, you tweeted uh, something to for people to tell you if if they'd convince you know you'd convince them of something, and there were a lot of replies by people who were. Um, you know, ex right wingers, uh, you know, ex IDW types, um, ex turfs, uh, ex Nazis in some cases, you know, which, yeah. which seems to suggest that this does sometimes work. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that people tell themselves about how um, there's really no point to persuasion because everybody just, you know, kind of thinks what they think and, you know, and, and you're not going to, uh, you're not going to get to them. Uh, and, and I wonder if, if a lot of that is because of some of that like uh, media bubbling that you're talking about, and especially because when you do interact with representatives of other bubbles, it's likely to be the people who are the most hardcore and adamant about it because they're the only ones who would actually bother to talk to you. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I guess I have a kind of mixed, more mixed history with directly interacting with like uh because it's one thing to kind of make content that's kind of geared to, that's that's with sort of a center or center right audience in mind it's another thing yeah. to be like oh i'm gonna have a debate with ben shapiro you know what yeah. i mean I, I i don't really do that so much um i also think that's less helpful in my case I, I don't know maybe some people are fabulous at it like the streamer destiny i know yeah. has had a lot of success by having these kinds of debates um that's maybe not my, my strong point but i do try to make um I try to make these video essays where I make an argument that's sensitive to the fact that, uh, you know, if, if, if you want to convince people, then it's not enough to just be like, here's 10 things you need to stop saying about pansexuality or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. Like, I think people, it's not fun to be preached at. And if you want a big audience, you have to, you have to, you, there has to be a spoon full of sugar to, to make the medicine go down. Yeah, right. So, I mean, I think even with debates and I mean, I, I guess part of the problem is that there's a lot of confusion about the relationship between making arguments, which is something you do all the time that you have, uh, that your, um, you know, your videos, you know, you, you tend to, uh, to go out of your way to try to say, okay, this is, you know, this is what people who think this say, the the incels, the turfs, the, the Nazis sometimes, you know, or for that matter, you know, left positions that you're arguing against. Uh, and here's what's wrong with it. But there's a difference between making arguments and having this like particular kind of like public spectacle, you know, that's a debate. And, and I mean, I do think that that like spectacle has some value, but like you also have to remember that it's like only half about the actual arguments that are being presented, like at least half of it is like rhetorical pro wrestling, yeah, uh, something you know, something like that. Uh, and in, uh, oh, I'm sorry, you were saying no. I was got uh, like, but I agree that in debate, it's just, it's not just a spectacle; it's a particular kind of like. Well, pro pro wrestling is a good analogy because it's a kind of machismo. I think that's involved a lot of the time, and that carries over into a lot of non-debate content on YouTube, like the entire metaphor for argument is like owning destruction. Yeah. I mean, it's like this, like, it's like a fairly like adolescent, like boyish kind of ethos that seems to be imported from gaming culture. And the, the idea, like the metaphor for an argument is, is, is owning someone, destroying them. Ben Shapiro wrecks so-and-so with facts and logic. Right. Yeah. And like, 
that's another thing that I, I kind of dislike because I feel no one's like, no one's convinced by being wrecked by being owned, right? <laughs> right, 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 like, right, right. Because this is a kind of, I don't know, to me, it's a very ma- like a masculine game of trying to humili- humiliate the enemy, which, okay, sometimes there's a place for that. I'm not going to sure. say there never is, but I find that I personally do not tend to be more receptive to someone's ideas if they're in the process of trying to destroy and humiliate me. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I find that it's actually kind of counterproductive that it serves maybe an entertainment goal uh, of a sort, again, only in the, mm. I'm speaking to my in-group kind of way. Uh, people who are really fabulous at it, I guess maybe can can make it good to like, I, I, there's a, a colleague of mine and a friend of mine, H Bomber guy on YouTube who, I guess he's, he's, his most famous meme moment is a response he did to Ben Shapiro about climate change, where um, he plays a clip of Ben Shapiro saying that, you know, won't, oh, if the sea levels rise, won't people in, in coastal homes simply sell their houses? And then H-bomber guy takes an ax to his own wall, sticks his head through the hole and, and, and shouts, sell them to who, Ben? Fucking Aquaman. And it's like, that be, that became like a meme, and, and it, this is definitely like like mockery, right? But it it, it works, right. right? It's funny. I think most people can look at that and see how ridiculous Ben Shapiro is being. Um, so I'm not. I don't want to completely discount like this type of yeah. media because I think it succeeds sometimes, but it's also. Uh, and I'm not always above it myself. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I did. I mean, I poured milk on a, on a on an effigy of Jordan Peterson. But like, <laughs> I think that. Um, as far as your relationship to your audience, uh, you know, you have to, <laughs> I try to make them feel good about agreeing with me. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I also tend to think that like, whether you, whether you're actually talking about debates or just like presenting arguments and videos, I, I mean, I think the germ of truth when people say nobody's ever convinced is that hardly anybody's ever convinced like in the room, right? Like, like, like just, just yeah. in the middle of like talking about it or even in the middle of like watching two people talk about it where they're really rooting for one person, you know, it, it'd be super rare for anybody to just have a flash of light and be like, oh my God, I guess you're right. right never mind. You know, I, like I think certainly looking back at, you know, the times in my life when I've been convinced by things, it's never like that, right? Like usually like my, my first reaction to hearing like a good argument for a position I disagree with is like irritation, you know? And then, yes. and then, and then, then maybe, right, if things go really well, then uh, at best, right, maybe like I'm thinking back to it weeks later, you know, when there's like less ego at stake, it's like, oh yeah, wow, that person had a point, didn't they? Yeah, that's, it's sort of the nature of how the human brain works, right? Like, no, that's that you don't hear an argument against your position and, and, and just be like, oh, I'm completely wrong, you're right, you're right. And totally like re- because it's kind of an emotional component to right. belief and to disagreement and to persuasion, isn't there? And also kind of, sometimes even an identity component. Like, I guess like the most drastic example would be say like religious faith. Like in order for someone to convert or to deconvert to, to a particular sect, um, like that's often a question, that's often a matter that involves not just like beliefs and the way that you can kind of like, like rationalize it in or out of it in a sort of Thomas Aquinas way or, an ed, or a uh, rational atheist way, right? right. It's... Um, you almost have to change how you think of yourself as a person in order to change your religious perspective, you know? And I think that 
political views can sometimes have that um, uh, k- kind of a kind of a depth to them as well. It's not necessarily not, not all the time. Like I think that you know you can change your mind on like the, some of the small issues without necessarily like having to completely like re understand like reorient your place in the world. <laughs> but I do think that yeah. if if someone's going to go from being a conservative to a leftist. That is a major shift that often is going to be a trans. Like it's not just a, it's not just a. Oh, I see now that if not a and not are we whatever yeah. like whatever like some logical proposition you've been convinced of or like it's 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 you know it's, it changes like it changes your relationship with your parents you know like like it's it's a big deal and so people aren't going to do it lightly people aren't going to do it over nothing and. Um, yeah, I agree that that in the times that I've changed my mind, often, often if there's a conversation that kind of persuaded me, often in yeah. the course of that conversation, I was fiercely opposed to right, what the right. person who convinced me said up until the end of that conversation. And then I left. And then you're right. Yeah, it's like weeks later. Yeah, yeah. That like maybe like maybe on, yeah. maybe it like plants a little seed or like maybe yeah, some seed, people yeah. are you know, watching it at just the right time, you know, when they're like in a place where they can do that. I mean, I think with the religious thing, actually, just out of curiosity, did you, uh, did you grow up in a religious family at all? Or I grew up going to a Presbyterian church every week. And uh, I was never that serious about it, but I uh, became disillusioned and, 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 and quit when I was 15 years old. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of people, like with the religion thing, I, I find, right. I mean, like I, um, you know, that, um, you know, I'm sure you've, you know, you were a, uh, you were in philosophy grad school for a while. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when, when I was, you know, I'd, I'd have a lot of conversations with people about this cause it's like something that comes up. Cause I guess it's that they overlap between like, you know, esoteric arguing about philosophy and things that people actually care about. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that, I think that a certain kind of person is persuaded uh, by arguments and they become an atheist or something. But even there, I wonder if in order to be in a place where that can happen, like there's a more basic shift, which is that like, you're even thinking of this as the kind of thing that you could decide by thinking about arguments. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I agree that that has to kind of be there first or else, um, you know, you're not going to change your mind. And I think like, this is kind of what I think about increasingly what I think about Trump's own supporters Right. Is that, especially when you look at the QAnon, like yeah. you're not going to convince someone to stop following QAnon with facts and logic, like because well, I mean they're they're, they're literally willing to say that the yeah. people who they said would be arrested have been arrested and they've been replaced by holograms, right? Like this but is that's, not that's pretty based, impervious. <laughs> yeah. like this is not grounded in facts and logic to any extent, and I think that you know. A lot of it seems to be just, uh, I guess there's, a, there's actually a fabulous video about QAnon that was made by a YouTuber, Dan Olson, called uh, uh, In Search of a Flat Earth, I, I think is the name of it. And basically he talks about, uh, you know, he, he says that Q- QAnon, their, their beliefs like sort of shift over the months. So there's actually like very little consistency if you look on like what QAnon be- believers think in 2019 versus in 2020. And the only constants that he identifies are these kind of, outcomes there's um the great awakening and then there's the storm where you know the the mass arrests will take place and undesirables will be purged and 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 you know a glorious dawn for america will rise uh 
Well, the the thing is like, if that's the kind of core of the system of belief, isn't it? It's not, is it the case that pedophilic Satanists are drinking the adrenaline glands of children and at the highest levels of government, right? Like that, no, they, 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 because of course there's no evidence for that. Um, so that is kind of an imaginative premise that's, inserted to reach the conclusion that w- of what, what they want, which is this kind of authoritarian takeover, basically, crackdown on all these protesters. Yeah, I mean, they, they want people, they want the bad people to be like finally and, and decisively defeated to, you know, to be... Um, yeah. You know, to be arrested, to, well, to be executed, maybe in their case, you know, mm. which which I think is a pretty common, like, obviously QAnon is like the most extreme imaginable, like, manifestation of it. But it seems like, uh, but it seems like that sort of basic idea that like what you really want out of politics isn't... Um, you know, it's not that you want there to, you know, like there to be a different, you know, like healthcare system or, you know, something that some nerds like us might care about, but like that they have, uh, you know, but that you would, um, but that what you really want is for the people that you hate uh, to, to be decisively punished in some way. Like, I think that's like pretty common for a lot of people. I mean, I think that there's, I think that there are, you know, there are liberals who, you know, spent like, who were like really sure. And, you know, not that this is on anything like the level of the satanic cannibalistic, you know, pedophiles, but, uh, you know, but like who were, who were just deadly certain, you know, that, that uh, the, the Mueller stuff was going to lead to Trump being, you know, perp walked, you know, away, you know, across yeah. the Rose Garden. And, and, and the, the, you could really tell they were like really reveling in that because that would be the most satisfying thing that could possibly happen, you know, from, from their perspective. And it seems like some of the stuff that you've talked about more recently uh, about um, uh, about online cancellation, like is is a is a sort of w- like weird petty version of the of the same thing, right? You know that you're not yeah. being, um, you know, you like you don't think, you know, nobody who you know you know nobody who yells at you on Twitter thinks that you're a cannibalistic pedophile or that you should be executed, but um, but they do. Uh, but the idea that what would really count as a political victory would be if the bad people were just shown somehow they were, they were just like, they were just made to, they're just made to suffer in whatever way that we can make them to suffer. And that would be what would count as winning in politics. Yeah. There is a theological longing in a lot of people's politics. I think like what people want is a, a day of judgment, right? They want the, the, the defeat of their enemies and the liberation from the pains of this world. Right. Like, and I think that that's true on the left. It's true on the right for, for some people. Um, I think, you know, QAnon is, is pretty obvious how it maps onto that. On the left, yeah, there's defi- definitely the, the, like the guillotine memes, this hope that all yeah. these people, all these people, all the bad people are going to, we're going to get them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> like, there's a vindictive kind of uh, strain to this, I think. And there's also... Some of the, there are, there are, I don't want to say like, because I know that, that call it accusing leftists of utopianism is kind of a like yeah. conservative trope, but there are, there is like a genuine uh, strain of it, uh, of utopian thinking on a lot of people on the left. You know, what they want is relief. They want release from the, uh, you know, the hardships of their lives. And, uh, you know, that's, 
there's, there's, there's things that we can do, of course, to make people's lives easier. There's, there's, there's like, yeah, to a lot of people, like, I don't know, canceling student debt, for example, that probably would feel like the bonds were cut, you know, uh, it it may not just feel like it may in fact be that in a lot of meaningful ways, but I do think some people have a sense that like, oh, if we just had a socialist, if we had Bernie Sanders in office, like problem solved, like it's not, you know, the, the world could now. And like, the truth is that like, no politician is ever that good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, it, it, it's even, even, I don't know, there's, a, there's, a, there's like, I, I got into this whole debate last yeah. month over like uh, incrementalism versus like revolutionary politics and people accuse me of being incrementalist. I don't know that I see that much of a difference between those two. It's two different methodologies, sure, but like yeah. revolution is incremental. It, like it still is. I don't know. Someone someone left a comment in my video saying, I wish people on the left would stop talking like a revolution is just hits the reset button on a country because like, no, it doesn't. Like this, the, the existing structures continue to exist in these insidious ways. I mean, if you study like, I don't know, the French revolution, for example, like, yeah, it changed a lot of things. It got rid of the, you know, monarchy, aristocracy, it changed the church, like all like a, a huge, I mean, right. as transformative as a revolution can be in some ways. Um, but in other ways, like, well, you know, France had another king later on in the next century. Like there was Louis the Seventeenth. Like and so, like it, it all like, and and you know, Russia is not a communist country today. Like not really. Um, after one hundred years after the nineteen uh, nineteen yeah. revolution, so it's like, you know, a revolution does not. Uh, so it doesn't solve everything. It, for no, everything. it doesn't. It doesn't. She- it doesn't shepherd. It doesn't open the gateway to this new utopia of uh, where, where there's no problems. Like it's. It, it might fix some problems, but it's. It's not going to fix all the problems, and it's going to probably going to create new problems. Problems like I don't know Stalin. Yeah. So I mean, I, actually, I'm glad you brought that up. So thinking about you know about revolutions and and. I mean, I agree. It's weird the way that we talk about that sometimes. Like, even if you think about that example, like the French Revolution, um, like what's the stage, um, you know, where the revolution happens, you know, because like people talk about like 1789 and storming the Bastille and and all that stuff. So that's like big and dramatic, but mm. most of the institutions of the French state still exist like in the way that they did after that and there's there's like a there are a bunch of points over the next few years where different things change in big ways but it's like uh but if um you know but the idea that there's some like very clear thing that like okay this is the line you know that like this is the you know the revolution happens here right what you're really talking about is some kind of like you know maybe very dramatic maybe like way faster than it happened otherwise process of a lot of things changing really quickly um but uh, but like you said, I mean, it doesn't make like the underlying conflict that like gave rise to in the first place go away. Sometimes the other side takes back power in 20 years. Right. Um, uh, and so if you think about, you know, capitalism, I remember you did a, a two part video called Capitalism yeah. uh, a couple of years ago, maybe. Uh, and and so I, I think uh, I think some people might, you know, might be curious about this. Like, what is your um, you know, what is your you know, what is your take there, right? Like, I mean, I know that, you know, that there's this sort of um, recurrent, uh, you know, running joke in a lot of your videos. There's the there's the sort of ultra radical, you know, version of yourself that, you know, that you'll have, uh, that you'll have dialogues. Yes. <laughs> yes, you have the dialogues with Tabby, uh, who, um, you know, sometimes reminds me of people that I, you know, 
uh, some very specific people that I know, and uh, and and if, and in those, I mean, it's it's stylized, right? Tabby is is given a sort of. Um, I don't think it's a straw man. I think there are people who say just about everything that she says, but you know, there are, you know, but she's given a, uh, like she's given like a really intense version of these revolutionary arguments. And since you're kind of talking her down, you know, like you're, you know, you're taking the other side of the argument, but I wonder like, um, like, do you, um, you know, I think that some people might watch that and think, uh, well, um, she's really disagreeing with Tabby about all this stuff and, oh, and Hey, you know, she even thinks that, you know, we should vote for, for Biden, you know, in the election. Uh, so, uh, so really, you know, uh, really Natalie is, you know, is basically, you know, is basically just a liberal, but then if you've, you know, watched like those, those videos you did on capitalism, for example, that would seem to really suggest otherwise. So like how much of your disagreement with the tabbies of the world, you know, the real life equivalents is, is about like tactics, you know, what, what can actually happen right now? And how much do you think is actually about long-term goals? Well, I think a core disagreement as I see it is I view the tabbies as sort of not thinking in practical terms in a way that's really frustrating to me. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's not even that, like I oppose the idea of a revolution, like it may in fact be necessary to have something that I would describe as revolution in the next couple of decades. I mean, we'll see how bad things get. Uh, but like when you have these ongoing crises like climate change and like, uh, you know, the really out of control, like wealth inequality in, in the United States with, you know, people not having healthcare and Jeff Bezos acquiring more, like just this, this ludicrous percentage of the country's wealth, like, I can imagine a scenario where like, you know, if people like lose hope in the idea that voting Democrat is going to fix any of this and like, I don't know, some kind of like little civil war or something breaks out. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what this is going to look like. It's, it's hard to imagine, but um, so I, I sort of understand where the revolutionary sentiment comes from, but I also feel that I, I guess psychologically I detect this kind of fantasy sort of like wish fulfillment thing like in all this like like you mentioned about this storming of the Bastille or the guillotine yeah. memes like a lot of this seems to have to do with the fantasy of like we're gonna get them and it's yeah. like okay but what happens after you get them like uh you know that's the hard part right like getting them is fun so I understand like the urge to get them but like then what um, you know, how, uh, I, I, it's like, I guess, uh, it's like, it's like uh, Zizek's line about how he really, really wants to see a sequel to V for Vendetta, you know, like literally what happens yeah, the next day, the next day. Exactly. Because it's like, it's, you know, the country that the, the people who voted for Trump are still going to be here. Like the, this country's going to have, still have a lot of the problems that it has now. And it's like, uh, how confident are we that the new revolutionary committee is going to like be able to handle this better than, I don't know, a current, you know, I guess I'm not saying that I know so much better than Tavi, but I, I do think that like when there's something, when it really gets to me is when there's something concrete that you can do that definitely will help. Like in my opinion, voting for Biden is one of those things. Like getting Trump out is a good, like a very major good that is a 
you know, a real possibility that was available to us. The election is like one of the few ways we have to subvert very directly, like, you know, change who's in power and to not go for that opportunity to not choose to do everything we could to get Trump out of there. It just seemed to me like a, like a terrible surrender to, you know, the, the sinking of this country into nationalism, you know, and I guess it just it just frustrated immensely to me that people were saying like oh don't vote for Biden revolution but yeah. then like what okay what revolution though like is that going to happen like I that th- just didn't see anything that made me thought it would so it kind of seemed like well Biden's not good enough so we're going to do nothing is what it felt like to me I guess yeah so a question that a patron asked uh, and I think I know how I would answer this but I'm curious about how you would would it was. Okay, so a, a different argument that somebody could have made uh, against, you know, voting for the Democrats the last election, uh, you know, wouldn't be because, you know, they think that we're, you know, on the verge of storming the, you know, whatever the American equivalent is the best deal the best right now, deal, yeah. uh, you know, but uh, that they, but that this is something because voting is one of the few times uh, when we get to exercise any quarter sort of like leverage over people that they need our votes. So they have to accommodate us somehow so that, uh, that if the left people had supported Bernie, you know, had like been more willing to just uh, withhold uh, their votes, you know, their votes for Biden, then, you know, we could have like effectively used that to, to exercise some sort of leverage and get more of the things that we want politically. Well, I guess I have a, a couple a couple issues with that. One is that in the 2020 election, like mm-hmm. I was genuinely not, I mean, I still am genuinely not certain that had Trump won this election, I'm not sure there was going to be a 2024 election. And so I guess to, to me, like part of what was at stake in this election last month was like the democratic institution itself, itself you know, like Trump has basically just openly disdained democracy said that he you know he well i guess he'll he'll he sort of has an excuse which is that oh the democrats are going to steal the election and then when they were democrats when he said oh the democrats stole the election right and but to me like it's i mean it's obvious right that this is this is his way of stealing the election right <laughs> or, or or of just not stealing it actually of just discounting it right and i feel that if he's willing to do that why wouldn't he be willing? I don't know. It, it was. Just, I was just. I just felt that like it's a much better situation to be kind of trying to influence the government if Biden's in charge than if Trump is. Like it's it's a much more, um, you know. At least you have like this this guarantee that there's going to be another election. Um, okay. I guess the other the other issue is like. I feel that with Biden, with with Bernie losing the primaries, yeah. like I feel like the the kind of leftist, you know, far left progressive that they already had kind of been discounted by the Democrat. I, I don't know. I just I just feel like it's not a big enough group to exert that kind of pressure. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. You know that what they. I mean, I think that that second point. I mean, like I I think I might have been more optimistic. Uh, you know, I think it was definitely more optimistic about Trump. Um, you know, leaving office. I mean, I, I, I mean, I kind of think he's blustering, and you know, and 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 it's probably and like everything else Trump does is probably some kind of fundraising grift. Uh, but uh, but but certainly this this point about like the pool of people that you're realistically talking about here, right? Like like I think like uh, 
you know, it was a lot less this time, but like, you know, a million people maybe, I guess, voted for, uh, for, for Jill Stein in 2016. And, you know, mm-hmm. and like, what's, you know, I always thought, okay, what's the total pool of people that we're talking about here, you know, that are like, that are like really considering this, you know, like, okay, do, you know, that who would consider not voting for Biden for left-wing reasons. And, and it seemed like, um, you know, it seemed like if everybody in that pool had not done that, right, like then, then I'm, I'm not, um, I don't know. I mean, like, it, it, it seems like there are, you know, it's a big country. There are lots of different places to draw votes from, you know, like I, I, I have a really easy time imagining the Democrats just saying, oh, we should, you know, I guess we didn't try hard enough to get like suburban moderate Republicans. We'll do more of that next time, you know, rather right. than saying, you know, oh, I guess we really need to appeal to, uh, you know, to, to leftists, uh, you know, like the ones that we beat in the primary. I, I, I have a hard time, you know, seeing what their, um, you know, seeing what their incentive, you know, to, to do that is. I mean, I guess it's a little bit like the revolution thing that uh, I, I think it would be beautiful if there was, you know, a uh, electorally viable party besides the Democrats and the Republicans. But I, I don't know that you can just wheel that into existence. You know, I, I think that I think that when that has happened in the past, you know, like the Republicans coming about in the 19th century, it seemed like that had to come from like the collapse of an existing party and not just, you know, about, you know, well, not just whatever the 1850s equivalent of was of, you know, of very online people just, you know, just deciding not to uh, not to vote for the Whigs. Yeah, I think that something would have to kind of, would have, I, I agree, that would have to precipitate the collapse of the Democratic Party. And I think the Republican Party is a lot closer to collapse than the Democrats. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I wonder, right. Like, cause uh, I, I mean, it, it seems like after you've, after you've had Trump, you know, like, I mean, sometimes it just seems like, okay, whatever, things will just go on. They'll just adjust to the, the new realities. But it also seemed like there are all these people who got into it for Trump, especially this time. Like yeah. they, like he had, um, you know, like, like we actually had like crazy turnout. It was just like even higher on, on the democratic side, you know, so, so Biden won, but like uh, there were 70 million people uh, who, yeah. who voted for Trump. That's way more than usually vote for, you know, Republican. And it, it sort of seems like, you know, once you've had like the, the good, like, you know, once you've had the good stuff, you've had the pure uncut Trump, <laughs> you know, like, are you really going to settle for Marco Rubio or whatever? It's hard to <laughs> imagine. It's hard to imagine them putting in a Mitt Romney type figure at this point, right? Like they've gone too far. I don't think they can go back. Um, I don't know. I don't know what they'll try to do. It, it's because I, I agree that like so much of the Republican politics, you know, before Trump was basically just a kind of, softer respectable way of p- playing you know i mean i mean people people like mccain or mitt romney like these are people who are primarily like pro you know big business basically right. like it's, it was it was it's about they're they're capitalists right and but they were they, they would kind of softly use the kind of dog whistles of race and masculinity that trump uh uses a foghorn right, right. and I think that more people actually will go along with a kind of pro-white, like almost like proto-white nationalist kind of movement than will go along with a pro, uh, you know, corporations are people, my friend, like, <laughs> um, you know, billionaire movement, you know? Um, so that's, 
it's it's hard to imagine the Republicans trying to go back to that. I, I guess one one possibility is that they run someone like um, Tucker Carlson, right? Right. Someone who says, oh, this is actually the party of the working class now, and we're defending America from Black Lives Matter, from Antifa, from, from you know, from the cultural Marxists or whatever. And, like, and, and that's kind of a, what I'm guessing is going to happen, which is pretty terrifying because I guess I feel like everyone on the left right now is afraid that we're going to have some authoritarian fascist who like Trump, but much more competent and not just a grifter. Right. Yeah. I mean, Tucker, I mean, like, like in some ways that's incredibly frustrating uh, because, you know, these people like, like Tucker Carlson who say that, you know, they're going to be the party of the working class. Uh, I mean, the second you start to scratch under the surface, it's like, okay, well, look, do they, you know, do they support giving everybody health care? Do they even support raising the minimum wage? Of course not. They don't support any of that yeah. stuff. It's, yeah. it's just cultural signifying, you know, that they, that, that they're on team, you know, well, white working class. Uh, but unfortunately, like, you know, cultural signifying is a lot of how people actually decide to, to do these things. I mean, it seems like, you know, maybe part of the problem, like, you know, like one of the reasons, uh, you know, that Bernie lost, for example, uh, is that even though, you know, there was there were exit polling showing all these states that, you know, that uh, exit polling, uh, there are exit polls showing that all these states that, uh, that Biden, uh, that Biden won, uh, in the uh, in the primaries that you know most people supported you know Medicare you know most Democratic voters supported Medicare for all for example, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of that was was about Trump you know that people were so desperate to get him out and they thought that Biden was a safer bet but it also seems like some of it might just be that a lot of people don't really take seriously the idea that um, you know that any of this stuff is is, is going to happen right you know that like that just that just participating in politics is a way that you can bring about things that are actually going to make a real material difference in your life. You know, they're, they're like very well trained to think that, yeah, okay. People say it will, you know, during, during yeah. elections, but then it really won't. Right. So then we're, we're kind of back to at least like giving me the right, you know, like signaling in the right way culturally. And, yeah. at, and at least you can, at, at least you can really show, the bad people, right? You're back to like punishing the bad people that, you know, that if, if nothing else, I mean, the Trump, um, you know, I mean, the most honest Trump yard signs that I've seen are the, you know, before the election are the ones that said cry more libs, you know, because yeah. like, that's really the appeal of Trump that he, that he's, he's going to, he's going to make all of your political enemies really, really, really mad by his presence. And Despite so voting, yeah, it's very strong. Um, you know, it's it's like some of these people seem not to actually, they don't actually believe anything he says. I, I mean, there was a, I guess, where did I read it? It was an interview with um, SEAL Team 6, the guy who killed Osama bin Laden, who was a Trump supporter. And I guess what he said, he was like, uh, about Trump, you know, tweeting outrageous things oh that's just trump being trump you know it, you know he's just doing that to 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 rile up the libs like to to, to piss them off and, and they, they love that they love that he does it and it's like so they know that this man who lives in a golden apartment is not like a man of the people they they kind of know that he's not even gonna i don't think these people actually think he's gonna bring back steel and bring back manufacturing and bring back coal like at this point they must know he's not doing that uh no one seems to really care whether the wall is built or not or whether it works uh, so it's like, what do they want? Well, they, they like that he pisses off the people they don't like. They like that the snob, snob, snobs and CNN who don't represent them hate him. Um, 
that he's not politically correct or whatever. I don't know. It's, it's like, yeah, it is a, uh, a vindictive, petty, <laughs> spiteful. Yeah. Well, yeah. if you won't listen to me, then burn it down. I don't want to play your, you know, I, I don't know. It's, 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 it's hard for, it's a little bit hard for me to imagine uh, voting this for this reason, but. Yeah, no, fair enough. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I guess, uh, so I, I guess that does maybe, you know, bring us uh, back to what we were to, you know, starting to talk about earlier, because, I think that maybe the same like lack of belief, you know, that like this, this kind of like deep, like what, you know, Mark Fisher called, you know, capitalist realism that, you know, which is, is, is not, which is a very different thing from like celebrating the status quo or thinking it's awesome, but it's just yeah. thinking that it's, it's inevitable. It's just like the weather, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, I, I think that like, it, I think it's something that no matter what people think ideologically, it kind of seeps into all of us. And yeah. uh and I wonder too, you know, when, when you start thinking about like the things that are kind of pathological uh, about parts of the left right now, if that is a big part of what causes it, that, it, that people, um, you know, again, if you're not really confident that, you know, that we're, you know, we're going to win or, 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 you know, like that, that we're going to actually like accomplish much uh, in, in the real world, you know, because you're just so... I mean, you know, God, I mean, if you've got any sort of political position to the left of liberalism, um, you know, you're just so used to youth to losing all the time, right? You know, that's, that's the, that's just the normal state of things. And so if you can't, um, you know, if you can't win, you can at least like show people how committed you are and you can show yourself how committed you are. And uh, you can at least have the satisfaction of going after people who are supposed to be on your side, but uh, but you think like really aren't or like really don't show adequate commitment or are too friendly to you know people who are en- you know who are enemies of yours, and you can get some of that kind of emotional satisfaction uh, that way, which is the only way that I know how to make sense of um, of for example. Uh, you know, what, um, you know, what, what happened, um, you know, with you, um, last year, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, ask you to go through the whole thing. I'm sure you're sick of it at this point, but, uh, the, uh, but, uh, a lot of people online decided, uh, that, uh, that you were, uh, either like a self-hating transphobe or maybe that like you, you, you were really like against like non-binary trans people or, or, or something like that. Uh, uh, and even though, um, even though, I mean, like all, you know, your videos, I mean, I guess not the really old ones, but you know, but like a, but you know, a whole ton of them, right. Are, are right there on YouTube for anybody to see. And so, you know, you'd think that somebody is saying, okay, I wonder what Natalie thinks about X, right? I wonder what Natalie thinks about, you know, whether non-binary gender identities are real things, they can go look at your videos about them. So, I mean, what, um, I, I guess you can speak to any part, you know, to, to, to any part of, of that that you want to, but I mean, it's, it's, it's just, I, I think that if you're taking it all on the level that like the people, you know, the people are just like, you know, confused about what your positions are or other people who end up, you know, being sort of piled on in this way, they're just confused about what their positions are. It's really hard to make sense of. Yeah. I think that, uh, I guess I want to say that I don't, 
talk about canceling because I'm trying to avoid criticism. Like, yes, I have made mistakes and have done and have said things that are kind of like off and problematic, but, but I guess where it becomes, you know, a real problem is when people kind of seize on those things and they put them forward as evidence that actually secretly you're a really horrible person and you're, and you're trying to destroy trans people and all the things that you say in public, that's just a mask. That's just you pretending to like trans people for profit, like question mark, like, I, I, you know, despite, despite the fact that actually much more profit is to be had in doing the opposite. Um, but I, I, I guess I think that I agree with what you're saying where people, a lot of people feel very powerless and they want to storm the best deal. They want to get the bad guys, but the best deal is hard. It's very well fortified and uh, they don't have any guns. So you can get, you get a YouTuber, you know, that'll do like, like it's, it's about getting a, a feeling of power of bringing someone down, you know? And I think that that is part of the thrill of why people do this. Like there's a lot of rage that kind of has no outlet, a lot of, daily injustice that never seem where it seems like no one is ever held to account um you know but sometimes you can there's you know when someone is not big enough that there's sort of an arm's reach you actually can kind of like get them in some way and i think that that what that happens often like with uh, trashing people within leftist communities um there's a lot of like the hate that sort of should be maybe directed at like, I don't know, the billionaire class or like uh, Donald Trump or whoever ends up finding sort of is transferred to a a lower target, Um, you know, like a leftist who, I don't know, just tweeted something dumb seven years ago or whatever it is, right? Like, it's, it becomes, I mean, there's, there's that element of it. I think the, the transfer of frustrations. And then there's also, I think a kind of, um, well, it's, it's sort of a failure to abolish the police within, right? Like we sort of learn from um, uh, the, the way that power exercises itself in our world. And then we kind of reiterate those forms of power and domination uh, in our own communities without necessarily being super reflective about it. Uh, you know, I guess the guillotine is a great metaphor for that actually, because uh, I, I, you know, the, the monarchy in France, like corporal punishment and execution was like, that was how the Kings maintained power was with these big displays of, of torture and, and execution of tra- traitors. Right. Um, like the, the one that Foucault talks about in, in discipline and punish um, Damien, who tried to kill Louis the 14th and was, you know, the flesh torn off his body in public in the public square with hot pincers or whatever. Like, uh, well then, you know, it was Robespierre was initially, he was anti capital punishment, but by the time the revolution came around, suddenly we're executing people, you know, 800 a month or whatever. And I think that uh, the desire to punish, you know, even as we, the, the desire to kind of, I don't know, the sort of surveillance over each other mm-hmm. and the, the kind of reporting of uh, of crimes and, uh, you know, desire to, to, to punish and, it is. It just seems to kind of come. It, I've heard people argue that it comes from a sort of internalized, uh, like internalizing the police state or something like that. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, like, I, I think that there's, there's a weird tension between two things that people say about this, which are one is what you alluded to at the beginning of that mm-hmm. answer, which is, oh, uh, people who complain about canceling just don't like being criticized. You know, they think they should be immune from criticism. Uh, and, and the other is um, that this is, this, is a, this is actually like really important because you know, what you're actually talking about is, is accountability. You're holding people accountable. Mm. And, and I always wondered how those two fit together because it seems like if we really were just talking about criticism, you know, criticizing somebody doesn't really hold them accountable. You know, that's, that's, no. that's, not, that's not accountability. That's just like, you know, telling them why, you know, where you think they got it wrong and then they can tell you what they think. And, you know, like that's, that's not really a punishment, uh, you know, but, but if you, if you think, oh, this is great, we're holding people accountable, that seems to acknowledge that there's a difference between criticism, you know, which is like what somebody might do if like they made a video where they like argued against something that you say in one of your videos, that's right. criticism. Yeah. Uh, that there's a difference between criticism and this kind of like mass pile on of like a hundred strangers yelling at you at the same time, you know, which I think is something that just like realistically, psychologically, like, like I, I don't think most of us are built for just shrugging that off. No. Yeah. It's, it's, well, there's a lot of problems that kind of compound against with each other. Like there's people who have like valid criticisms or who want some kind of acknowledgement from you of the mistakes that you've made. Uh, that's totally fine. But the thing is that it exists in this digital space where there's also, you know, a lot of people who are just being straight up abusive and there's people who are calling for your exile, demanding your friends to to disown you. And it sort of builds as the momentum. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to, to to make general statements about this sometimes because I think different case, you know, different cases have people are they happen for different reasons and they work in different ways um i think in my case like one thing that that's frustrating to me is that there's a lot of people maybe uh, several hundred people who are just kind of almost obsessively angry about my existence and it's it's hard exactly to say why except that i think it comes from uh i mean i think in my case there's there's particular reasons why people are, are very resentful of me uh, a lot of trans people feel very powerless, very unheard, and they see me as someone who like cis people listen to and who has, uh, you know, who has a level of acceptance that's not available to most trans people. And so that's frustrating to begin. I mean, because of like the pettier impulses and human nature, which let's just be honest, like they're going to happen. Sure. But also I think, you know, that gets, they're they're going to happen, but it's a matter of degree. Maybe you can't abolish the police within, but you can at least defund it. Right, you can defund. Yeah, exactly. And I think that then that that kind of background resentment gets really exacerbated when I do something they don't like or say something they think is bad or wrong. Because it's like not only do I unfairly, you know, have all this stuff that they want and can't have, but also I'm using that position to misrepresent them or to, you know what I mean? It's, so I think that that is sort of part of what's going on here. It's, it's, I think a reason why someone who is like not trans in my position probably wouldn't have this type of devoted hate following. Um, but I also think that, you know, obviously like I'm not the only one who like literally anyone who is involved in like media these days, journalism, any type of activism, is aware of this kind of problem and is kind of lives in some level of fear of having a mob come after you online. 
Yeah. And, and again, I mean, this is something I think it's like very easy for people to say, oh, you know, whatever, log off. What do you care? Right. You know, it's, it's not going to it's not going to hurt you. But then then the question is like, OK, but one, is that really what we would say in in any other situation? Right. Like like if yeah. if, a, you know, if 100 people are, are you know, we're saying, you know, uh, you know, horrifically, you know, sexist things to a woman online, you know, would, would any, uh, just log off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We don't accept that. And those conditions and the reality is like a lot of us, like, come on, like we all know that most of us are way too online. We kind of work online. We live online. There's now a pandemic, so we cannot do anything but I be know. online. And so it's like law, just log off, like just log out of the public forum, basically um, go away, disappear. Like that's, you know, not, not a great option. I also think that, um, I mean, I, I do think there's, there's, there's things you can like people who are just being abusive online. Like everyone has to deal with that no matter what, to some extent. And, you know, you know, so like there's, you're saying this as if you aren't aware that you can, you can block people as if you don't do that already all the time, but right. it's, uh, you know, I, I've had an issue where, where anytime, like someone will say like, they're, I don't know, they're, they're having me on their podcast, for example, on Twitter. And then like someone resp- will respond to that being like, Oh, contrapoints is a transphobic turf, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, it's, it's, it's just harder to not constantly run into it. And the reality is that the human brain has never in, in the history of our species had to deal with criticism on this volume right. that it has to do now. And, and I don't think anyone really, me included, understands how to deal with this or what the implications are. Yeah, no, that makes uh, that makes a lot of uh, a lot of sense. So, uh, don't want to hold you for uh, for too much longer. But if uh, if you're good with this, maybe we can do uh, you know five ten minutes and uh, of uh, uh, just uh, just quickly asking uh, answering some uh, questions that a yeah, uh, couple from a uh, couple from you know just just random things, couple from patrons and couple from friends that uh, mm-hmm. that they wanted to, wanted me to ask you. Uh, so uh, one of them uh, was uh, from um, uh, Edwin Patreon says, hi, Natalie, big fan. I was wondering if you'd ever delved into the works of uh, Leslie Feinberg, a transgender lesbian author who's written about LGBTQ issues from an internationalist and unabashedly class-centered leftist perspective. Um, I haven't. I really do want to, though, and that's, it's, it's, on, it's on my list. Um, I, I've been reading a book called Female Masculinity by Jack Halberstam that references Stone Butch Blues several times. So sort of encountering it th- th- through that, but um, yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I have not so far uh, read much of much Feinberg on my own. Fair enough. Uh, so Jonathan asks, as a longtime digital art creator, what is your opinion uh, on this current split between artists and the pandemic. Actually, I'm not sure I understand this question, but maybe you will. Uh, some have newly embraced uh, digital art. Oh, okay, I see what they're saying. Some have newly embraced digital art, the Zoom aesthetic, while others have continued making in-person and riskier projects, uh, while some are simply waiting uh, the pandemic out. Uh, has your artistic process changed because of the pandemic? Well, Really, my, I mean, I'm in a position where this ought to have affected me the least of a lot of people, because what I do, I I work from home, I do it 
uh, the only real material effect is I've had to kind of plan things out a little more in advance as like shipping, like stuff that I need to, to for props or whatever takes a little longer. Um, but I would say that this year has not been a super productive one for me for psychological reasons. And the pandemic has been part of that. Um, you know, it might not have hit me so hard, except that I kind of had a bunch of other personal problems going on this year. Uh, you know, I mean, this is a year that like started with, well, just watch the first two videos I made, I made in 2020, canceling and then shame. Like that's kind of where like, I was at. And then the right. pandemic hit right after that. Right. So it's like, it's been a sort of multiplying psychological effect of going through this personal like stuff that it's, you know, that I would be helped, I think, if I could get out of the house and go meet new people and like leave my little bubble of of shame and sadness. But here I, I'm like like imprisoned in it, and it's it's for psychological mental health reasons. It's made me much less productive. Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, I, th I think I remember when the um, you know when it really hit the U.S. in uh, in March. You know, when everything was shutting down. I remember a lot of people saying that they thought, you know, oh, that, you know, that because people are going to be spending all this time at home, there was going to be all this amazing productivity. Yeah, I can't wait to write my King Lear, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that probably most people, it's had the opposite, certainly for me. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 actually, it's actually not, it's interesting. Having all the time in the world to sit around and do nothing actually is not helpful for productivity. Um, it, it's, it's, that's actually just not how psychology works, it, it turns out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no question. Uh, uh, Pepton uh, asks, uh, do you have any favorite uh, public intellectual social commentators, uh, whether they be academics or YouTubes uh, or uh, academics or YouTubers? I can't read today. Uh, favorite social commentators or intellectuals. Um, well, I enjoy some of my YouTube colleagues, no doubt. Um, <laughs> some of them I mentioned already in, in this uh, stream H bomber guy, Dan Olson. Uh, Lindsay Ellis, um, I guess, do I have any favorite academics? I feel like when I was younger, I would kind of idolize some professor or, or, or writer who, who, who I liked. I went, you know, I think I was like 21 years old. And I went through a stage of loving Slavoj Žižek, for example, uh, or just being very entertained by him at least. And I feel like I'm like less prone these days to like standing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. standing a public intellectual uh i guess i've learned better than to do that in some sense so i don't know i guess i my my relationship to uh the kind of the books i read and the um sort of videos i watch is not quite so like fangirly as maybe it used to be mm -hmm. uh although i kind of miss that i don't know maybe so, I, I i kind of would love a, some public intellectual to come in and sweep me off my feet as it were but it hasn't happened in a while. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so, how about uh, you know, if you want to, uh, if you want to skip that, that's uh, that's that's totally fine. But uh, but somebody, a uh, friend, um, Mark Warren, uh, asked this, and um, and and just out of idle curiosity, since uh, since you uh, you were in uh, philosophy grad school uh, at, uh, at at one point. Uh, I was wondering if uh, if you did want to weigh in on you know it's like any of the sort of topics that you might have um, uh, you know you might have have spent time thinking about then. I mean, I'm not sure what you know kind of program you're going to uh, or um, 
you know, but that people would not, of course, guess from the kind of thing that you're doing right now because they'd be totally off that track. Like, you know, do you think compatibilism is right about free will, stuff like that? <laughs> oh, man, it's been a long time since I thought about any of those things. I guess uh, I, in some ways I kind of am anti-philosophical in my approach to things. Like, do I have a moral theory? Am I consequentialist? Am I virtue ethics? Like, no, like I think I'm, I think I'm like a... I don't know. I believe in sort of pluralism with all those things. Like Mm -hmm. I think that it's useful to study philosophy and it's like useful maybe to your own mind to like read the work of someone who's like, I am a utilitarian. I'm going to champion utilitarianism as a theory. Like this is what ethics is. Um, But of course I wouldn't actually go so far as to say like, Oh, that's all ethics is. We got it. Like, I don't think that ethics is, I think that, philosophy is a, is a you know topic where people complain that oh there's no you know philosophers never make progress they never um discover you know you know universal theories that everyone agrees upon yeah. but it's sort of a misunderstanding of what philosophy is right part of it i, I guess to me the, the the good thing about philosophy is that the process of of reading very very intelligent people's writing about these essential human topics is that it helps you think more clearly and but it's not mm-hmm. to arrive at the answers it's to arrive at some more sophisticated methods right no that makes a lot of sense and you know i, I also do you know well i like to think you know because I'm, I'm still attached to it enough that the that um that there there's also great like value even besides those subjects and in, in like going through that kind of like training and taking apart arguments and putting them back together again. Like, you know, like, like I think that like you or, um, you know, Nathan Robinson who edits current affairs or, or, or like, um, you know, Glenn Greenwald, you know, we're all like at least undergraduate philosophy majors and, you know, and and I'd like to think that, you know, for uh, some of the people on that list, you know, that it, uh, you know, that it, it makes them much better at doing this public facing stuff where sure they're talking about like political issues that are maybe a little bit more urgent than, you know, what the right way to think about, uh, free will is then again, you know, uh, then again, the records mix because Sam Harris was also an undergraduate philosophy major and, you know, he sucks, but, um, but yeah, I guess uh, if you uh, also um, some people were, uh, I think there were several people who asked some version of whether, you know, there are a bunch of, uh, of old videos from when you first started doing this stuff that you, that you took down uh, that, uh, you know, that were about interesting topics. And I think some people were wondering if you ever had like any future plans on like, you know, recreating any of those or, you know, revisiting the topics. I think it's unlikely that I would recreate videos from before 2017, like largely because like, what am I to remake my videos about the alt-right? Like, yeah. I don't know, the internet moves too fast for that. We've moved on. We're like five things ahead of that, you know? Um, <laughs> How, but I do think that some of the topics that like I think you know I did a, a couple of videos once about free speech. That's a very interesting topic to me. Still, I'd like to come back to. It's conceivable to me that I would do a video about free speech again and revisit that as a topic. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think that would be. I think that'd be interesting, and I think it would it would connect in an interesting way to some of the stuff that you've you know you've done lately. You know, since a lot of you know, I think not. Um, I think a lot of people have a sense that some of these, like some of this stuff, like how, um, you know, how censorious, you know, people are being, you know, when dealing with, you know, disagreements on the left and things like that, people have a sense that that has something to do 
with free speech, but I think they're often not very clear on what exactly it has to do with free speech. Yeah, there's a lot of like very un, yeah, unclear thinking about free speech. Um, and I think it's a complicated and interesting topic right? because there's kind of, uh, on the one hand, people will tend to say like, my, I'm being silenced. Like this is, my free speech is being taken, you know, when essentially what is happening is people are getting mad at them online. Um, right. And it's like, okay, you know, that's not, that's not free speech being taken away, uh, you know, but on the other hand, sometimes you'll have people argue. I see people argue this on the, on the left sometimes, like, well, the government isn't taking away your free speech. Right. So no amount of deplatforming amounts to a restriction of free speech. But it's like, well, for, I don't know. It's also worth, I think, talking about like free speech as like a, you know, what is it, a civic virtue is the John Stuart Mill argument or like free a civic value. I don't know. But like the, the idea basically that, I don't know, when we're arguing about how forum, our forums should work, how should social media work, who should be deleted, who should be allowed. Um, I do think that free speech does have, it's important actually. I think it's kind of undervalued actually by a lot of people today on the left. I think, um, you know, that's partially a product of, of just the times that we're in where like, you know, I, I think like, like leftists haven't had to fight for the right to say what we want to say in a while and the way that say like Noam Chomsky's generation did. Um, And also we are, we inhabit these platforms where like Nazi speech is getting amplified all the time. And so it's like, it's tending to be like, okay, free speech is kind of overrated, but there's a reason why this has traditionally been like free speech has traditionally been a championed by progressives and leftists. Right. And I do, I do think it's important that we don't forget those reasons as, as well. Yeah, and there's also something really funny about uh, about leftists making that argument. Oh, if it's not the government uh, doing it, then, then right. you know, no form of deplatforming raises a, a non-leftist. It's such not a leftist way of thinking. No, right, yeah. not at all. Like yeah. normally, we think that you know. I mean, that's that sounds like something that you know libertarians would. It say sounds like a libertarian that, argument. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that like, oh, you know, okay, sure. You know, if you have these like hugely powerful corporations that like realistically have enormous amounts of control over the flow of information, but whatever, it's the government. So it's all like voluntary actors in a free market, you know, doing, yeah. uh, you know, doing what yeah. they want. How are we making this argument seriously on the left? Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think, um, you know, do I have, I have no simple answer to this because I do think like, I don't know. It's it's because I I I personally have like my intuitions are very strongly pro free speech. I think much more strongly pro free speech than like a lot of especially younger people on the left today. Um, that said, Alex Jones being banned from social media is so good <laughs> that it's hard for me to be like, well, yeah. we should really allow this. I'll die for his right to say it. You know what I mean? Like. Uh, <laughs> So, so yeah. I, I, yeah, the, the truth is that it's, there's not a, an easy answer to, to this question. Yeah. I mean, it's cause it seems like, especially that the reason that seems to, that Alex Jones seemed to have been kicked off when he was, and, you know, and, and granted, I think part of the problem with a lot of these processes is that uh, they don't even really have to give you that much of an explanation, you know, when, uh, you know, when YouTube decides to kick somebody off or whatever, uh, but the reason that seemed to be at the time was that uh, was that some of his stuff about Sandy Hook was going was like crossing the line into uh, inciting harassment yeah. against uh, parents of shooting victims, uh, and you know if anything you know it, like like in a more reasonable process 
like if we had like really clearly defined rules, there was much more of a meaningful ability to appeal than you had. It's possible that that process still would have resulted uh, in uh, in Alex Jones being kicked off. Because if anything is going to be against the rules, that would be it. Yeah, totally. I guess I, I, another another reason that a more tactical reason that I tend to be like yeah. pretty he- heavily pro free speech is that in my experience, a lot of the attempts to say um, you know deplatform Nazi speech end up kind of backfiring in this way where, where for instance, uh, okay, so you pressure YouTube, like ban the Nazis. So YouTube says, okay, we're going to age restrict or delete videos that have swastikas in them. Well, what you've done is like the Nazis don't use swastikas because right. they're not idiots. Like, right. and, and who uses swastikas are people doing making educational videos about the Third Reich or anti-fascists. And right. so, so often like this kind of area, okay, so we want to ban people who incite violence. Well, what about anyone who talks about the revolution? Is that inciting violence? Like kind of, <laughs> like, why isn't that going to be banned? Like, why do we trust these big corporations to decide what counts as violence, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it almost seems like, I mean, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about powerlessness, that uh, that that it really, the fact that some people have both of those positions, that they they advocate like literal violent, you know, street insurrection, you know, as, yes. as a way of achieving socialism, but they also, uh, they also want YouTube, you know, to, to be, um, you know, to, uh, you know, to have stricter rules, you know, about what, about what you could say, like, it seems like that's, those are, you would only hold both of those positions if you knew on some level that you were so powerless, you were so insignificant that you just didn't think that you would rise to the, the level of the censor's attention. Of being cracked down on. Yes, exactly. Uh, where I'm actually in a position where I do have to kind of think about it. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I yeah, it, it is. I do feel that like, especially when like communists are, and anarchists are, are pushing for like, oh, more active moderation, more active cr- crackdowns on, on what political content is allowed on platforms. It's kind of like, do you not worry that this is going to come around and hurt you? Like, because again, you're, you're asking like Facebook like, to ban, like, well, what if they decide, well, for, you know, just to show that we're not biased and if we ban the Nazis, okay, we'll also ban the communists. Right. Right. And it's, I don't know how confident are we that they're not going to do that? I'm not very confident. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I mean, I don't think we should be confident. And especially if, if we get to a point where, uh, where the, the socialist left played a bigger role in American politics than it does today, then I would Mm. really not be confident about it, you know, because, obviously uh the uh, start getting worried (laughs) yeah exactly because the people who own these platforms you know their interests are not going to align you know with that movement like by definition well that would be a really good video i would really like to see that so i I think i think that that should be on the list for 2021 yeah nice all right well thank you so much i really enjoyed this yeah me too thank you for having me on all right and then all right dope that'll (laughs) that'll be that yeah so so yeah, no, that was uh, that was that was fun. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you for having me. I I've noticed I've been I've been kind of looking at your that's your book behind you. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Is that out now? Uh, it's not out yet. I okay. um, it's yeah. So sadly, yeah, that's just an author copy. The the gears of uh, uh, of the you know uh, zero books you know published like it takes mm. forever you know so that's that's sure, yeah. that's not going to be out till the spring. But uh, well, if you want to. Uh, if you wanted to read it, I'd be happy to, you know, like I could, you know, I could send you a PDF of it. 
Yeah, I'd be happy to. I, 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 I try to read everything on that topic that comes my way. So yeah, I'll, def- I'll definitely read it whenever it's, it's, it's ready. Sure. Yeah. No, that'd be great. Uh, yeah. So that was, uh, yeah, I really, uh, yeah, I'm glad we got to do this. I enjoyed the the thing uh, <laughs> virtually in uh, Poland, but uh, but I did. Uh, um, you know, I don't know. It was, it was also it was, like it felt like a slightly weird, uh, felt like a slightly weird thing, you know, because it, it sort of seemed like they wanted to have, uh, you know, like like they wanted to have a third panelist, and they wanted that third panelist to be somebody who had a different perspective. And so far, so good. That makes sense to me, right? But yeah. like then. You know, but then it also kind of felt like they picked somebody who wasn't necessarily like, I, I don't know, it felt weird to me. It was like, it was like, it, it felt like somebody who hadn't necessarily, who wasn't necessarily super interested in this, you know. Topic, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, and like, I thought he said like some things that were interesting, like, and like, sure. I did feel a couple of times like that he was kind of checking some of my perspectives, like, but yeah, yeah I think that like, it didn't seem like if he had a lot of experience or a particular interest in this, apart from just like a casual observer of, of this within like an artist community. Yeah, fair enough. All right, well, hey, I'm not gonna take up any of your time, but this, uh, this is great. Yep, nice talking to you. I will uh, see you around. I'm sure we'll do something else in the future. Yeah, I really hope so. All right, have a good one. You too. I'm now joined by uh, the great David Griscom, uh, who is uh, now a co-host of uh, Left Reckoning. So this that's uh, that's very exciting stuff. Um, you know, formerly, of course, of uh, of the Michael Brooks Show. Uh, so let me uh, prepare properly for Outlaws and Revolutionaries. Very nice. I'm on the beer train today. What's that? I'm on the beer train today. All right, all right, fair enough. <laughs> uh, well, I could uh, I could switch to beer, but uh, all right. How's it going, brother? No, it's going pretty. Uh, it's going pretty well. You know, it was a uh, it was a really good conversation. Uh, you know, with uh, with Natalie, a lot of exciting stuff going on. Uh, I should say, by the way, uh, that for anybody watching this on. Uh, on YouTube on Monday, if uh, if you're not completely sick of watching me talk to David, uh, then uh, you can tune in uh, to uh, the TMBS YouTube channel on uh, Tuesday, where he's going to be mm-hmm. moderating moderating a session uh, in the, the continuing you know multi-week uh, conference to uh, of discussions to uh, you know to honor Michael's memory. Uh, the first one, which was really good, was uh, Cornell West and Slavoj Žižek. Um, and uh, this one uh, is uh, is going to uh, to be me. And uh, who else is going to be on that? Uh, we have uh, Mark Blythe, and uh, you know we're also going to be joined by uh, Richard Wolf, All right. which is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. But there's another one coming up too. Uh, I think actually is being recorded as we speak with Harvey K. Latoya Reed and Adolf Reed, I believe, which I think is I'm really looking forward to listening to oh, as well. Yeah, no, yeah, that should, be, that should be fantastic. I think that'd be really, yeah, that'd be a really interesting conversation. So, yeah, the Zizek Cornell West one that's going to be a hard one to top, but we're going to be doing our best. I mean, all of these uh, panels are pretty star studded, so I'm excited. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the Zizek Cornell West thing. I think it's both. Obviously, that they're they're both you know incredibly smart and insightful people. Uh, but those were also just like probably like the two biggest personalities that you could, you know, that you could stick. <laughs> well, I felt bad for Russell trying to moderate that conversation <laughs> because they completely took over, which was great to watch. <laughs> I mean, there was, I remember laughing. I mean, the whole stream was great, but I remember laughing at one point, Russell was trying to get a question and both Zizek and Cornell West were just like pulling books off the bookshelves and being like, no, oh, this is my favorite book that, you know, uh, holding up each other's books, basically. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty cute. <laughs> fair enough so um so yeah last uh you know last week we had a conversation about um you know about sturgill simpson uh and uh and his uh, his excellent uh, bluegrass album uh cutting, mm-hmm. you know cutting grass uh and so uh so this week you know we figured we'd uh, you know we'd wrap that up by how you know by talking about uh his uh, his earlier uh, his earlier two uh, two albums so mm-hmm. set us up a little yeah um you know i mean the thing is it's hard to talk about uh, sturgill in the way that we've been doing these other segments just because all of his work is just so dynamic and he's you know he's still out continuing to do make incredible music uh, i've been a fan of his for you know very long time since he sort of became you know popular and well known um we're gonna talk about yeah those couple albums you know specifically uh um Metamodern sounds and country music, because uh, that was such a big breakthrough and a brilliant album through and through. Um, but for people who might not be familiar, just to shout out another piece of work that he did, he has this really interesting uh, animation a movie that you can watch on Netflix called Sound of Fury, um, where it's just basically the whole, it's, it basically is like a 30 minute music video in some kind of post apocalyptic world. And, you know, Sturgill's playing incredible guitar and music all throughout. It's a really interesting piece of, of art. And like, that's why he's so interesting is because people talk about him in the context of outlaw country a lot. And I think that's absolute, but he is through and through an artist and he's not just mimicking, uh, you know, old sounds. He's really uh, changing the game and, and you know, uh, creating different kind of music and a different kind of sound for country um, you know, just before we get into the music, because it's always worth like bringing a little bit of the biography, you know, this guy is, you know, he's the real deal. You know, he spent most of his life not being a famous musician. Um, you know, he spent three years in the Navy. He kept on essentially moving to Nashville and not really being able to, you know, strike big. Uh, was working in the Pacific Northwest at an IHOP. I think goes back to Nashville after that. Don't work out. Goes down to, I believe, Utah and starts working, you know, on a railroad a facility and his wife essentially, you know, was really pushing him as were a lot of his friends to really, you know, get into, into music. And he finally comes back to Nashville um, and makes these incredible records. And, you know, thank God for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think even, um, yeah. And I, I think it was really interesting listening to these records, you know, cause he does some of the same songs and, um, you know, bluegrass versions, um, mm-hmm. cutting grass uh, that uh, that he does, uh, country versions of uh, on this. You know, like um, you know, like one of the tracks that we spent a lot of time talking about uh, last week. You know, which was turtles all the way down, and mm-hmm. uh, the other, and um, you know, I really like the bluegrass version of it, and and I and in a you know very different way. Like I really liked the the sort of country, but like very unusual country version of it on Metamodern Sounds. 
Oh, exactly. I mean, that's such a brilliant song. And, you know, one thing that's so great about Sturgill is like, uh, I mean, he's, he's really talented in a lot of ways. I mean, his tone as a musician is amazing and he's always switching it up in that album at a modern, um, just constantly, you know, changing the jams and, you know, some of them feel like a little bit of homage to different styles of country music and, you know, Southern music in general, but, uh, um, you know, Turtles All the Way Down is just also such a great lyric. And you can tell, like, listening to his music that he really is a writer yeah. through and through. Um, you know, he's he, he's very well read. You know, somebody's a big fan of, like, Walt Whitman and also Carl Sagan. Uh, you know, he's very much steeped in, you know, great, you know, great works and also like a very American tradition. Of, of literature, which I just think is so incredible that you can, yeah, you can find that in his music everywhere. And, you know, he's, he's uh, one of the songs on metamodern um, sounds like country music that I wanted to, uh, yeah. you know, shout out is, um, is voices, which is a really great song, you know, which has this great line and it. it was like a picture, a picture is worth a thousand words, but a word, uh, but a word ain't worth a dime, but what's a song worth? Right? <laughs> and it's just really playful. Um, it's true. You sort of get into that kind of mindset of like, you know, what it's like to be, you know, a songwriter, a musician and trying to eke out a living out of that. Um, it's incredibly uh, beautiful, beautiful song, really interesting. Um, you know, I've like got some other lines that are so good. Um, when it's dark and the sky is pouring acid like a fountain and the memories like cold dust stain the window of my eyes. So ask them no more questions. They can't sell you no more lies. <laughs> God damn, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I, th I think that's, you know, that's what, um, you know, certainly as I was listening to these two albums, you know, like that's, that's what kind of kept, you know, kept striking me that, you know, like you'd have, you know, you'd have this, uh, you know, this, this music that's, you know, just, just very fun to listen to in all the obvious ways. Uh, and, you know, and, and then, you know, and, but then you keep on having these things that would both be like very like, haunting in almost the sort of way mm -hmm. that like you know the best like radiohead lyrics are haunting you know and uh and then also um you know then then like also just they're they're just these like amazing lines that keep cropping up and they just kind of sneak <laughs> up on you yeah and it's just like you know because of the way that we're doing these um since we focus a little bit more on the lyrics that's the easiest thing to share but you have to understand that especially um on metamodern you really are getting such a tasting of of country music and and you could tell also um his like creativity and love of other genres too i mean you know he's somebody who often says in interviews you know he had no real intention of of doing country uh, earlier in his life as i feel like a lot of people who grow up in the south or grow up with this music they sort of have that little bit of you know rebellion which i understand completely um you know wanting to get away from it and then it comes back and it hits you real hard when it does uh, but he always says you know whenever i pick up uh, the guitar it's country that comes out and you can feel that um but it's it's just like it's not a stale sound it's very much always it's very dynamic it's always changing as i was saying earlier he's really such a master of tone and anybody who plays guitar especially electric guitar understands how that's like a lifelong quest and it's fun how much uh his music is shifting like on that album uh honestly like a lot of those songs in the the album they really do feel like homage to all these different styles like a little light is like like outlaw gospel in a lot of ways, right? You have like the, you know, all these backup singers um, singing together. It feels like you're in church. Uh, don't need no compass, no map or chart. Don't need no stars shining above. Don't need nothing but a little light in my heart glowing inside me like a blanket of love. 
I mean, you know, those are, that's a sweet song, um, you know, which very much feels, you know, like a great gospel song. And it's in the middle of this kind of psychedelic country album, which is so great. Um, Ain't All Flowers, which is one of the final songs on that album, is a, a really fun one, too. Man, I can't listen to that song and just not feel like this is an homage to <laughs> that kind of Southern rock, which a lot of people don't like. But, you know, I very much love. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very much a, it's a thumping song, no doubt about it. You know, big old, big old guitar heavy uh, overdrive, stuff like that. You know, lyrics and that are great. Been dancing with demons all my life. Every time I find my groove, they cut in like a knife. Um, you know, that's just <laughs> that songwriting and the music, um, you know, Long White Line uh is a really great one too i mean that's a trucker jam but it, it, you know the, and the thing is about him too is like yeah, i probably you have lived to, in lived in miami too long you know i kept thinking what well, long white line was about something else <laughs> i feel like i'm sure it wasn't an accident um you know very much a part of that lifestyle too um for truckers as well but um you know the, the thing is like you have to i think it's important to you know obviously judge musicians by their own merit um but you have to also remember people like this and the same thing with Jamie Johnson, you have yeah. to understand the context of what's being made in Nashville as they're coming out with these songs. It's just trash. Right. And they glorify these kind of symbols like pickup trucks and things like that, but not even from like a working class background. It's like status symbol, right? It's like power. Mm -hmm. It's like having a fancy car, you know, and going back and doing an old school kind of very much in the tradition of outlaw country, like trucker song is just so great. Like the trucks in uh, Sturgill Simpson's, you know, music are, you know, are big 18 rigs, right? 18 wheelers, right? They're not, a, <laughs> they're not these kind of like souped up monster trucks that, you know, uh, playboys or frat boys drive around. Um, you know, anyways, that's like, you know, great song too. Like went to the bank to get my dough. I don't care where I go. Going to push this rig till I push that girl out of my mind. If somebody wants, um, somebody wants to know what's become of this so-and-so tell them I'm somewhere looking for the end of that long white line. Right. And it's just like, uh, that's the, you know, that's the traveler, um, you know, mentality. I mean, he's, <laughs> I've listened to a couple of interviews that he was doing, I think uh, after his first Austin city limits concert. And he was saying that he was a professional van driver. <laughs> uh, you know, that's uh, which I just thought was a great line, um, man. And it's just like, so before I get to this last couple of songs, I, you know, the, the comparisons that you get with Sturgill are to Waylon Jennings all the mm -hmm. time. And I think they're very apt in a lot of ways, but I also think that he's a very different musician. I mean, Waylon Jennings, this is no disrespect to Waylon Jennings yeah. uh, as uh, you know, we just got our Spotify staff. Uh, I mean, like the top 1% of Waylon Jennings listeners. So like, this is somebody who I very much love. Um, but, you know, Waylon was somebody who played a lot of other people's songs yeah. and he really brought his attitude and, you know, his his rock background um, to country music along with that kind of thump and honky tonk sound. And you definitely get that with Sturgill, but I think there is a kind of uh, an, an intention sometimes with Sturgill's music that I think also really elevates it and takes it to somewhere a place um, special. Um, but the song that really reminds me the most of, uh, of, of uh, Waylon Jennings or that kind of outlaw country music in particular is that song, Life Ain't Fair and the World is Mean. Oh, yeah. Um, which is just, we listened to that last week for the, his bluegrass version, which works. Um, but, you know, this, uh, the album on the original, um, it's just so incredible, badass steel guitar, thump and jam. And, you know, he even throws out his, uh, you know, his love to, uh, um, you know, the, the outlaw country music and uh, the highwayman when he says daddy was a highwayman, but he had never wrote any old country songs. 
uh, Papa never uh, stayed out raising hell till the brink of dawn, right? Like he, he's very much like in that kind of that world and mentality while also really making it modern. I, I think what I'm trying to say is that he's just not mimicking people. Like no, he's a- in their spirit, but he's not mimicking anybody. He's doing his own music um, in a way that is just because it is so raw and, and beautiful and powerful and interesting and tells these incredible stories just sonically um, that he very much is like these outlaw country musicians. And you know, I like the definition of outlaw country music, uh, which is like not about the music at all. It's an attitude, right? It's like right. people who just wanted to buck the trend and do their own thing. And somebody who was just, you know, broke into, you know, Nashville, like fairly recently and, you know, later in his life than a lot of people, uh, you know, he's definitely in that category, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. No question. And and it is, um, I mean, especially better modern sounds and country music, you know, like um, as, you know, the title is kind of playfully indicated. I mean, like, like really like, uh, you know, like sonically is, is way like, uh, you know, high top mountain out, out of the three mm. you know, we've, we've, we've listened to is, is the sort of uh, most, you know, comparatively speaking, you know, the most conventional sounding, mm-hmm. you know, uh, one, but, um, uh, but then, um, but then it's like, I mean, like really, really good, you know, as, as far as, uh, you know, like, you know, just this, you know, the sound of it, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's incredibly well done, but, you know, mm-hmm. but I mean, it's, it's the most, you know, conventionally put together metamodern sounds and country music He's obviously playing with it a lot. And then of course, oh, yeah. you know, the one we did last week, you know, he's obviously doing the bluegrass versions, but, um, but also, of course, the other thing that, you know, that's, you know, that, uh, that separates him, you know, we're very, uh, yes, we're very pro Whalen here, but you know, what's, mm-hmm. you know, the thing, you know, I think the thing that, that most obviously, you know, separates him is again, I mean, just the, uh, you know, like, like the lyrics, um, you know, are, are just, in, you know, really in, in a category of their own. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, I, and I like the, uh, on high top mountain uh, there's a uh, there's a song uh called uh, uh you can have the crown which i just mm. uh you know which i just want to do the quote the first two uh stanzas of because it's uh like i think it i think it brings together a lot of what we talked about with sturgill this week and last week about um uh about some of the uh, you know some of the politics that sometimes in the background uh about the like some of the, um, you know, some of the like, you know, lifestyle stuff, the drugs and all that. And, uh, and, and, and just also the sort of general, you know, vibe uh, of it, mm-hmm. which is, uh, well, I've been spending all my money on weed and pills, trying to pay, write a song that'll pay the bills, uh, but it ain't come yet. So I guess I'll have to rob a bank. I guess it could be worse. <laughs> it ain't that bad. At least I ain't sitting in old Baghdad in the middle of a damn near desert sitting on a tank. Yeah. No, I mean, like, and that's exactly it. And like, you know, the politics and the perspective are such a part of his music. And and we talked about this last week, but highly suggest people listen to his, uh, you know, podcast episode with the Trillbillies. I love that connection. Uh, Maybe people aren't familiar. That's a great uh, left-wing podcast based out of Kentucky. And, uh, you know, he's very much in it. And um, his interviews are really a, a treat to listen to. You can find most of them on YouTube. And he's just a, you know, He's a very humble guy, but it's very funny how playful he is with critics and journalists, you know, because they always want to have some like grand narrative. He's like, I'm just making songs, you know, I'm just like telling my story. And it's like, he's not underplaying, uh, he's not being a, you know, a jerk or anything like that, you know, denying how much people resonate with it, but he's just being honest. It's like, you know, this is something that I'm putting out into the world. 
um, you know, that is representative of, of my experience and it's authentic. Um, and, you know, just like any life, you can read a lot into it, but it's, it's just funny to hear him, especially I remember like he did, did an NPR uh, tiny desk concert and he was just like, you know, I get nervous sometimes playing for people like y'all, because you always find all these things in my songs and my songs are just about, you know, getting drunk and doing drugs. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I think a little bit that's tongue in cheek because he definitely is a very intentional writer, but uh, you know, I, I do love, uh, you know, taking uh, that kind of way of treating music, you know, when people like, uh, elevate it so much that it just becomes like an alien product. It's like alienated from what it is. It's something you should be listening to and enjoying and being a part of your life. Um, I think that's a, you know, that's a fun aspect of him. And, you know, I mean, this is somebody who's very well respected, um, you know, amongst the people who are doing, uh, who are fighting for country music today. I was, I can't remember the name of his band member, but I was listening in prep for this at an interview uh, with one of his, uh, his band members who was saying when he first saw him, uh, one, he thought he looked like an asshole. Uh, and two, he was there with uh, Jamie Johnson and Shooter Jennings, who's Waylon Jennings' son. Um, and Shooter looks at him and says, you know, that is the best uh, country artist in, uh, in Nashville. And that was before he sort of blew up, um, which is like, if you're getting that kind of praise from people like that, who know, yeah. um, who know a thing or two about music, uh, you know, I think, I think this sort of tells you what you need to know about him. And, you know, I love, we talked about this last week. I loved him coming out against the CMAs um, and really pushing because yeah. it's, it's such a disaster, honestly, um, that you could be a country music fan and um, not to go down a rabbit hole or anything like that. Yeah. But like when I was younger, like in high school, and I was listening to a lot of this music, you know, primarily through like the radio, um, you know, there actually is like a severed connection, I think. Um, between like this kind of interesting outlaw country music that I love so much today um, and what you're getting on, on the radio. Um, so it's really great to see people like him, you know, reconnecting those strands into, into the present. Um, and also just fighting back. Cause it's just like that industry and the people who control it are just so horrible and they're taking something really beautiful from all of us and we should be pissed. And I think it's important to not only, you know, to not only say like, Oh, I don't want to participate in this nonsense, but to also just be really blunt about it. It's like, this is a joke. Um, and I can't believe you're doing this, you know, you know, um, and, and forgetting about the important memories of people like Billy Joe Shaver. Hell, actually, you know, just another strand, like the concert that they saw him at uh, Shooter Jennings and Jamie Johnson, they were all watching Billy Joe Shaver <laughs> playing in Nashville. Right. I mean, like there's that kind of deep, uh, deep rooted connection to the music that I just think is just phenomenal. It's good, good tunes, man. It's good tunes. There's really I haven't found a bad uh, Sturgill album, in my opinion, they're all so different. And hell, like Sound of Fury is such a cool uh, and ambitious project. So people should check that out too if you haven't already. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, well, and I, I will also say uh, that um, that my friend uh, Mark Warren, who I believe you met on the election night stream, if I'm, mm. if I'm remembering correctly, yeah, uh, is. Uh, um, you know the uh, the person I've uh, you know I've I've referred to as the um, uh, you know as my second favorite Texan, but he uh, <laughs> uh, but um, but you know I was thinking about it earlier. You know when you were talking about people who who might grow up around a lot of the stuff and you know and and, and sort of uh, you know not necessarily want to have anything to do with it because he uh, uh, he texted me you know a few days ago and you know, he was like well I usually skip the uh, the country music segments you know but I uh, but I listened to the uh, I, you know I listened to the Sturgill Simpson one and I ended up listening to the album and I was really into it so oh hell yeah I love good, that <laughs> that's beautiful I mean you know I I get it but it's just like uh, 
when like that was one thing just like lucky for me being in austin uh that you just like you get so much great live music and the people who are really keeping that 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 sound alive that you know it really you know it really can pull you right back in and honestly like i have fond memories of of hearing country music as a kid takes me back to spend time with my grandma and uh you know shoveling alfalfa and (laughs) listening to whaling in the background so fair enough all right brother i always really appreciate it yeah you too man take care all right you too All right, that was David Griscom, formerly of the Michael Brooks Show and now co-host of Left Reckoning. Before that, I was speaking to Natalie Wynn, better known by the name of her YouTube channel, ContraPoints. Uh, and next week, uh, I'm going to be talking to the great Anna Kasparian, uh, and I am also going to uh, be doing another libertarian debate, I believe, with uh, Jason Bias. Uh, next, uh, the week after that uh, is going to be Slavoj Žižek uh, and uh, a lot of other good stuff coming up uh, that I'm looking forward to uh, to being able to uh, to announce. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, when I was talking to Griscom, uh, you can see me on Tuesday night on the uh, uh, this Tuesday uh, on the TMBS uh, YouTube channel uh, talking to Wolf and Blythe about uh, you know left wing economics. Um, the, you know, TMBS is over, but the, the channel continues and there are various things that are going to happen there, uh, which all of which is very exciting. Um, and if you like everything that's happening here, uh, which, uh, which is quite a bit. Uh, so in between, uh, these, uh, these episodes been doing a bunch of, uh, of YouTube live streams. Uh, I have uh, been speaking to my producer Forrest. We're going to start, uh, recording. Um, <laughs> I've been speaking to my producer Forrest. Uh, we are going to uh, to start um, making audio versions of all of those live streams uh, available on uh, on the Patreon for people who want to listen to them in uh, podcast form in between the main episodes. Um, also, as the new year starts, uh, we're going to start doing a bunch of uh, patron only bonus episodes. Uh, so if you like what we're doing here, uh, if, uh, if you're excited about it, if you want to support it, please do consider becoming a Patreon uh, patron. So for uh, $5 a month, uh, the monthly cost of a milkshake in the 50s nostalgia diner in Pulp Fiction, uh, you can uh, get early access uh, to, uh, to every one of these episodes. You can get the podcast versions of the live streams. You can get the bonus episodes. You get the, uh, the Discord uh, you get uh, regularly scheduled Discord office hours, uh, group voice chats, uh, all of which is just a, a way of saying thank you because, um, you know, really appreciate everybody who is uh, who is helping us grow. Uh, if you cannot swing the five bucks, trust me, I get it. I have been there not very long ago. Uh, you know, I was an adjunct uh, for years. Uh, so uh, please do, though, uh, if you can. Um, like and subscribe on YouTube, rate and review wherever you get your podcast. Those things really do help. Uh, so um, I will see you guys next week. Left is best. <laughs>